Amen. Thank you. If you'll please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. I think it's on page 978 in your pew Bible. Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 14 through 29. Please stand as we read God's Holy Scripture. Remember, they're coming off of the mountain after the transfiguration. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he said. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit which has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. May God bless his reading of his word today. Please have a seat. In 1978, the British Army had to take over for the firefighters because the firefighters in Britain were on strike. So the the Army, one of the first calls that a unit of these volunteer firefighters got was to go rescue a cat from a tree. So the Army, eager to prove their worth, went, and they very carefully put the ladder there, went up to the tree, got the cat down, and returned it to the arms of its owner. And she was so overwhelmed, she invited the Army in to come have tea with them. So they spent an hour relaxing. They're British. I guess they have nothing else to do. Had tea. And then they departed, and there was many hugs and waves and fond farewells from the new bonds that were formed. And the army, feeling very good about what they had done, got into their fire truck and promptly ran over and killed the cat. The only thing worse than failing, I think, is failing publicly, isn't it? When you fail in front of other people, it's absolutely humiliating to fall flat on your face and have other people see your failure, be witness to it. And that's really hard to pick yourself right back up after that and continue on. 
When we fail hard, sometimes people like to remind you that famous people from history often failed. We're told of how Napoleon graduated only 42nd out of 58 in his military class. We're told that Robert Frost, the great poet, had his poems soundly rejected by Atlantic Monthly with a harsh letter. And Albert Einstein's own doctoral dissertation was rejected for being irrelevant and fanciful. Failure is everywhere. I guess it helps us to know that others have gone through that gauntlet of failure in their lives. But what's more important for us to know is how did they respond to that failure? How did they pick themselves up and go on afterwards? How did they recover? We need to answer this question, especially when it comes to our faith, because brothers and sisters, we will fail in our faith, and we will fail hard. And when that happens, sometimes it will be public, where other people will see our failings, and we will be humiliated, we will be embarrassed, and then we will have to ask, answer that question, what next? How do we recover from this? And I think it's important for us to look at this story today from Mark 9, because this is a grand example of not just failure, but public failure. And where we see when faith fails, Jesus prevails. Whenever we used to take teenagers on mission trips, one of the dangers we warned them about was what happens after the trip. You see, during the week, they would rise to what we call the spiritual mountaintop high, where they're feeling very close to Jesus. They're worshiping him every day. They're getting fed the word. They're going out every day on a service project and feeling like they're, they're, they're getting into that routine of serving selflessly. And so we always warn them that they felt so close to Jesus on Friday, but on Saturday or Sunday or the next week, they would crash down as they re-entered the real world, as they came back to their routine. And we warned them of that. We said, you've got to be on guard against that, not to feel like suddenly Jesus has deserted you, but to take something away from the week and put it into your life. We encouraged them. We said, this is how life goes. Because life doesn't get easier and easier. It gets, often gets harder, and we have to work harder at our faith. And that, unfortunately, is a cycle of our spiritual journeys. That's what we see here in Mark 9. You might remember from last week, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus were literally on a mountaintop high having a spiritual ecstasy, a wonderful experience where they saw the glory of God. They heard the voice of the Father. They felt like they could do anything. And they come off the mountain. Can you just imagine their excited chatter, the energy that the Peter, James, and John had? And then they crash right down into failure. Not their failure, but the failure of the other nine disciples. The nine guys who were left, left up to their own devices at the foot of the mountain. And these nine disciples have somehow not been able to minister the boy who's been possessed by a demon, who's had his epilepsy exacerbated by an impure spirit. And these, these disciples haven't failed privately over in, a, over in a room by themselves where nobody else could see. They've failed in public where everybody can see them. In fact, here's what's happening. There's, there's heated words being thrown about as Peter, James, John, and Jesus approach. They see a crowd. People are interested. What's going on? We, we pulled into our development the other day. And there was a car wreck on the side of the corner. And there were cop cars. And you could just see everybody rubbernecking and slowing down. That's, that's human nature. That's what we do. We see something's going on. We want to see what's going on. Especially, sometimes weirdly enough, if somebody else is having a hard day, 
We want to check that out and see what's going on. So there's a crowd there. And emotions are running high. Everybody's impatient. The crowd's curious. The disciples are embarrassed and ashamed at their inability to perform the kind of exorcism that they were able to do months ago when they went on a mission trip. Remember, they were able to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And, uh, and there's religious scribes there among the crowd. And they're arguing and they're mocking the disciples, Jesus' disciples. Why can't you do this? Why can't you do this? I thought, I thought your Jesus, I thought your rabbi had a power. And can you imagine the shame on the disciples' face? And in the middle of this all is, of course, the boy. A boy who's been suffering from childhood with epilepsy, with a demon possessing his, his body, and a father who is at his wit's end desperate for help. This is a very messy, ugly situation that Jesus wades right into the middle of it. And you see where his concern is at, Jesus, at the beginning? His concern is that he's just crushed once again by a lack of faith in this situation, especially in his followers. He says basically, or I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he says that phrase that we often heard from our parents, I'm not mad at you, right? I'm disappointed. Somehow that felt worse. I'd rather you be mad at me, Mom. Don't be mad. Don't be disappointed in me. His disciples are judged for their lack of faith, and they are found wanting. And he is deeply disappointed in them. So what is the failure here? Why did they fail? The failure here is because the disciples are displaying pride and self-reliance. Later in this passage, they asked Jesus, they said, they said Jesus, why couldn't we drive the demons out? You hear the we in there? Why couldn't we do it? She's like, exactly. That's why. Because you're pointing to yourself. You got so caught up in your overconfidence and a routine and a formula that you forgot who the true source of power was in this relationship, who really did all the heavy lifting. They failed in their ministry because they were relying on themselves and not on the power and ability of the Lord. When we, first find, when we find ourselves mired in failure, and we, that will happen, that has happened, often failure comes in ministry, in relationships, and especially in sin. What we must first do is realize that more often than not, that fail, failure has come about because we have turned away from God and started to rely too much on ourselves. and started to build up too much of our own pride, saying, I can handle this situation. I can handle this department in church. I can handle this relationship in my life. I can handle this sin all by myself. And then we fall flat on our faces. And we go, God, why did we fail? And he said, exactly. Because you were on the we. Faith in ourselves will fail. Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom once said that trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work but when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, ministry just flows out of you, and it is almost effortless. That's the kind of ministry I pray for every day. And some days it doesn't happen. Some days it is a tedious day because I rely too much on myself, and I think we do that too. Sometimes our failure may be spectacular. It may be public. And when if we fail, we need to take stock of where our focus is. Is our focus on ourselves? Have we been relying on too much of what I can do? Because yet again, that's, that's our American individualism. 
that we can do everything ourselves. We don't need your help, God. We don't need your help, other people. I can do it on my own. But instead, we need to confess our sin of pride and our sin of self-reliance and then pick ourselves back up and start to focus once again on Christ. Now, I'm truly glad that Knox Church hosts the healing rooms. I think it's a great ministry. I've been there. I've seen a lot of people go, and we've talked about it. I talked with Pastor Don. I'm really, really impressed with what he's done. Now, I like it because it follows the instructions of Scripture that we do need to lay hands on and pray for people who need healing. Whether it's mental healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, we need that. But what I hope everybody who does attend the, the healing rooms understands is that God answers those prayers of healing in his own good way. And sometimes that prayer for healing doesn't result in immediate healing. Sometimes God will see it fit to wait for the healing to happen. And sometimes God will wait until the next life when he gives you a new perfect body for that healing to happen. Faith doesn't automatically say you, you will be healed immediately. It's not necessarily that lack of faith. I think that sometimes we fault ourselves and we say, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. That's why God didn't heal me. Look at Moses, who had a speech impediment his whole life. Look at Paul, who says himself, he was plagued. He had a thorn in his side. He had some sort of physical or mental condition that was holding him back his whole life. They healed other people. They were not counted with a lack of faith. Yet God saw fit to withhold healing from them their whole lives because God's glory was increased through what happened there. But when we are in the middle of pain and suffering, when we have that going on in our lives, it can really shake our faith. It can cause doubt to creep in when we're hurting, or even worse, when somebody we love is hurting and we hurt on their behalf. And then we start, we start to doubt. We start to have those thoughts of, well, maybe I am not believing hard enough. Maybe, maybe God is punishing me for failure to be stronger. Maybe I'm just not praying with enough emotion and all the right words that will convince God to turn around and finally act. That's not how that works. God asks us to pray faithfully. He says that prayer will be effective, but he does not tell us exactly how he will use that effectiveness. I can't imagine what the Father is going through here in this passage in Mark 9 watching his beloved son suffer for the entirety of his childhood with such horrible things. Mark is really brutally graphic, isn't he? Twice in this passage, he's describing with these graphic words what this demon is doing to this boy. He torments this boy. The father even said, I have to be on guard 24-7 because this demon has tried to kill my son by throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water, trying to burn him to death or drown him. Can you imagine what that does to a parent, having to watch a child like that? What it does to a faith? The, man, the father's faith was shaken. It was a hurting faith. And it probably didn't help any matters that he brings the boy to the disciples. And Jesus' own disciples are unable to help. At this, this point, who can blame this man for having a hurting faith? I love how Jesus responds here because really his response is to gently probe the father's faith. He really wants to see where the father is at spiritually. The father here is straddling this line between faith and doubt. And see how Jesus responds here to a hurting faith? He point blank challenges this father. He says, 
I am challenging you to believe in me. That's what Jesus said. I'm challenging you. He says, I can do this, sir. I can heal this boy. I absolutely can, but can you believe it? Can you put your faith in me? Can you put your trust in me? Can you over, overcome your wavering, your hurt faith and trust in me to do it? And look at how the Father responds. One of my favorite lines, one of the most human, humble lines in the New Testament right here, where he says, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Almost seems like a paradox, but really when you dig into it, it's relatable. The Father is saying, I do have a faith, but it is not a perfect faith, Jesus. It's a faith that is hurting. It's a faith that has doubt in it. It's a faith that is riddled with pain. Come in and help me. You see, the Father's asking for healing for himself first. He wants to be healed spiritually. Overcome my doubt. Jesus calls on the Father to trust him. And the Father focuses on Jesus and asks Jesus to help him with his faith. And that's exactly what we should do. Because as Hebrews 12 tells us, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is what? The author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus made your faith. Jesus will make your faith perfect. Our faith doesn't come from ourselves. We don't spontaneously one day develop a faith that's independent of God. Jesus comes in our life and plants that faith. Then he makes it stronger. And then he makes it stronger still. He's the one to take that hurting faith that we often have in our lives and turn that faith into something strong and beautiful and powerful. Maybe you can identify with the Father today. Maybe you're sitting there and you have a faith that is hurting, a faith that's in doubt where you're going, where is God? I don't see God in my life right now where I feel far from God. Or if there is a God, why, why am I here spiritually? Or why is this person hurting? Or why am I dealing with this pain and this suffering? And I don't think, I think if in that, you're in that situation, there's no better prayer that you could pray in your life than the one this man prayed that day. Where you say, dear God, I believe, but my belief isn't perfect. My belief isn't strong. It isn't pure. God, help me with my faith. Help my faith to be stronger first and foremost. If you want to heal me, heal me. But heal my faith. Make my faith strong. Bless you. Whether or not we are physically healed is really secondary to the healing that God can do in our soul. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of your faith, and see what he will do to make that faith perfect. So now that the Father's faith is bolstered, Jesus restores it perfectly by casting out the demon and healing his son. And you see a family that has come out that day that was broken, that was hurting, is now returned home whole. Not just whole physically, but yet again, whole spiritually. But the stink of defeat still clings to the disciples. Probably even, even more so, now that they've seen Jesus prevail, where they failed. And they wait until they go into somewhere private with Jesus. And finally they have a debriefing they, they say, Jesus, what did we do wrong? Why did we fail? And you, you were su successful. Now, we may again be overly harsh on the disciples. We may be focused on their failure here. But I do want to point out that these men wanted to learn from their failure. They didn't just throw their hands up and walk away. They didn't just grouse about the situation. They asked Jesus, they said, what did we do wrong? Help us 
so that we can do it right the next time. And that's why Jesus responds. They, they want to start laying down the foundation for future success. That is, that is really telling. That's very inspirational there. And Jesus tells them in as many words that their failure was directing their attention inward instead of toward him. When a demon is cast out, it doesn't happen on the ability of a person. Justin Olivetti can't go and make a demon leave a person's body. I do not have that power. Jesus Christ does. And when I do it through the power of Christ, Christ can make that happen. And the first thing Jesus says we should be doing is praying. Prayer truly changes things. And he encourages his disciples. He said, you should have been praying. See, one of the best things about prayer is that prayer redirects our attention away from ourselves and toward God. That's one of the, benefit, that's one of the biggest reasons I think God orders and commands us to pray because it gets our eyes off of ourselves. We can't be focused on God and talking to God and thinking about ourselves. And so that's why he instructs the disciples, you need to be praying, praying to the Father that he could be doing this miraculous thing and not yourself. There was a little boy who was saying his bedtime prayers, as kids do, and his, his mother was there with him, and the little boy was saying, Dear God, please bless Mommy and Daddy and forgive my sins. And help me get a new bicycle. Amen. And the mom said, son, God's not deaf. You don't have to shout. And the boy said, I know that, but grandma's in the next room. She's a little hard of hearing, so, you know. Faith alone isn't always enough for success. It's not just enough for us to believe. Sometimes we have to take advantage of the means of grace that God has provided. And one of those means of grace is prayer. As with, the, as with the Father, we must fix our eyes on Jesus to bolster our faith. But as the disciples learn, we must also go to the Lord in prayer. And that can make a vital difference between a flop and a triumph in what we're doing in our ministries. Through prayer, a bridge is built that links a weak person and a powerful God. And God will come down through that prayer and do absolutely amazing things. Take the seemingly impossible and make them possible. A true faith, brothers and sisters, rests on Jesus Christ, not on ourselves. One of the functions of prayer is to take that self-reliance away. And when that happens, Jesus starts doing amazing things through prayer. And I think we'll just never stop being astounded by what he can do. If Knox is to succeed as a church, and I know sometimes success is always at our forefront. How, we, how can we be a successful church? If Knox is to succeed as a church, if we are to succeed as believers, we need to do something today. We need to avoid this tendency we have of trying to do everything under our own power. And I know some of us, we have a great work ethic. And some of us like to pour our energy and our time into volunteering. Don't stop doing that, by the way. That's not what I'm saying here. That's a great thing. But first and foremost, our attention needs to be on Jesus. We need to be focused on him. We need to be drawing our power from him, not ourselves. We need to be having our faith strong. In fact, if I could have one wish for this church, it wouldn't be for fancier programs. It wouldn't be for, for worldly signs of success. But it would be that we as a church would double or triple our effectiveness as prayer warriors. I would love to see this church so saturated in prayer that there would just be no room for doubt no room for self-reliance. 
but that every day we would see people around us relying again and again on Jesus and so that we would become encouraged to do the same. We would be great examples for other people. And the challenge this week really comes from Jesus, who dares us as he dared the Father to put our trust and our faith in him. Do it. He says, do it. Find out what happens. Let go of that steering wheel. Let me start driving and see what happens. See what amazing things I can do in your church and in your life and in your relationships. Let me see how I can take that failure that you're still smarting over and turn it into a victory. Because when we fail, when our faith fails, Jesus prevails and he can do amazing things through your life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for this lesson that we have to learn on behalf of the the disciples and their failure, one that we know all too often in our lives. Lord, we have failed, but we know that we can be successful with your help. Lord, help us. We believe in you, but help us to overcome our unbelief. Help us to trust in you more this week. Help us to pray to you more honestly, more fervently, more constantly, more diligently. Lord, we know the Bible tells us that a prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And it is powerful because it is in your name, in your power, that things happen. Lord, we praise you for all things in your name. Amen. Now receive the benediction. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.